0: Bibles and turn to Psalm 52 with me for our message. This is actually part one of a two-parter, which I will finish tonight. Um, Instead of finishing next week, I'd like to to continue to move on to the book of Luke next week, book sermon in the morning uh, service, kind of get that rolling. And so we will um, have our second part of this one this evening uh but I intend to give you um, this morning I intend to give you everything you need uh to to get the point, and then this evening we'll kind of elaborate on it more. It'll be like um, um, the bonus, uh the behind the scenes features or whatever you want to call it for those that that uh, choose to come back this evening. Uh title of the message, The Power of Words from Psalm fifty two. You know, words are powerful. In eighteen thirty nine, Edward Bulwer Lytton coined the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. And he did so to express a concept. And the concept is that the words, communication, has power. That the power of communication can oftentimes be a greater force for change than even physical power or physical force. Words have the power to hurt. They have the power to heal. They have the power to influence, either for or or against your words can shape your direction the direction of others it can it can shape the the perception of yourself in the 57th second excuse me the 52nd psalm david is is writing a psalm about a man's words as is often the case in the bible the concept of verbal communication is realized through a, a figurative body part when the bible desires to speak of um, the man's intellect or the man's will, the Bible uses a particular body part. We would think of it as the brain. The Bible uses the term heart, right? We're, we're learning about the concept in, in our memory verse for this month, keep thy heart with all diligence. Well, it uh, doesn't mean you hang on to the, the little beating uh, hunk of flesh in your chest, right? It means that you guard your your intellect, your will, your 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 direction, your volition, your emotional state. When, when the Bible speaks of emotions in in a deeper sense, it uses the concept of the bowels to speak of of the deep emotion. The idea that have you ever been uh, so emotionally distraught or so emotionally touched that you, you've you've gotten a stomach ache or or you, you've felt the the pangs uh, of of uh, of your emotion? That's the idea there, as it's given in the scriptures. And when the Bible wants to speak of the seat of a person's communication, they use the mouth, the lips, and more specifically or, or more often, the tongue. So they use that, that body part of the tongue to express the idea of that which we say, the way in which we communicate. And today we're going to talk about your tongue, not the little thing that's in your mouth, but your words, your communication, what you say, and how you say it. We're going to talk about the power of your words and why it matters. And we will do so through David's psalm about a man whose words were used to do exceedingly wicked things. And indeed, his words led to the death of hundreds without even remorse. The man in question... Is the man that we came across in 1 Samuel named Doeg. Doeg the Edomite. As we consider the Psalm's introduction, we find that David is writing the Psalm to be given to the chief musician, that it is a maskil. We've talked about this over the past couple of weeks. We've come across a maskil, uh, both, in both, uh, two Sundays ago and last Sunday. A maskil is an instructive psalm. It's sung in order to teach a lesson. As such, it holds these lessons for generations of God's people, even if we don't, we can't relate directly to the circumstance that's being sung about. And so let's take a, a moment to remember this man, Doeg, who he was and what he did. We met Doeg for the first time in 1 Samuel 21, when he was in the tabernacle or at the tabernacle in Nob at the same time as David. Recall, David had just fled from Saul for the first time and he fled to Ahimelech in the tabernacle and he fled to Ahimelech asking for food and asking for a weapon. And Ahimelech is able to help him with both. He gives him the showbread and he gives him Goliath's sword. And the scriptures tell us that Doeg was there likely performing some vow. Maybe uh, since he was an Edomite, maybe he was proselytizing into the nation. Maybe he had had some sort of ceremonial uncleanness and he had to get that taken care of. We don't know why he was there, but we know he was there. And we also learn at the time that he was Saul's chief herdsman. So he was a, a pretty important guy in Saul's kingdom. It isn't until 1 Samuel 22, however, that things get interesting. David has fled from Nob, uh, uh, he goes to the Philistines, in fact, and Doeg returns to Saul. And when he returns, he reports his sighting of David and Ahimelech. Now, we'll find as we go through the Psalm that David did more than, or excuse me, Doeg did more than just report what he saw, however. The words as David describes them in the psalm reflect the fact that Doeg did not just tell the truth. He inflamed Saul against Ahimelech and the priests. And we don't exactly know why he did this, but somehow he lied to Saul, uh, accusing Ahimelech of something more than, than what he had done. Ahimelech helped David in the innocency of his own heart. And we know that, that David in his lie did wrong. But it would appear that when Doeg went back to Saul, he lied about how much Ahimelech knew and how much he helped David for some reason to get Ahimelech into, into trouble. So Saul, after accusing Ahimelech, you remember, says to his men, kill Ahimelech and these priests. Well, the, the people wouldn't do it. Ahimelech was saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. Saul says, I don't care, kill them. The peop- his people wouldn't do it. So he looks at Doeg, right? He says, Doeg, you do it. Doeg says, I'll do that. So he kills, a, he kills 85 priests that day. And then he goes back to the city of Nob and he kills all the priests' family, their wives, their children, and even their, their cattle. And this is the context. Now, we've actually already read one psalm where David considers the wickedness of Doeg. But uh, Psalm 52 is not just considering Doeg's actions. Psalm 52 is considering Doeg's words. So let's dig into the psalm this morning. Uh, we, we saw already that the introductory to the chief musician, Maskil, a psalm of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said unto him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. And let's read the psalm together. Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endureth continually. Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor Working deceitfully, thou lovest evil more than good and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it. I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. David begins the, the psalm proper in verse 1, saying, Why boastest thou thyself in mischief, O mighty man? He opens with a question to this man, Doeg, and he calls him a mighty man. Now, it's interesting. This word mighty here, the Hebrew word gibor, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. It's the same word that's used of so many truly great men in the Bible. They are gibors, with one very notable exception. When we see a man like David, when we see his mighty men, when we see um, uh, Boaz, and he's described as this mighty man, we always see the, the, the term gibor, mighty, with another word, a gibor chayil, a mighty man of valor, of honor, of strength, of wealth. It is a term that reflects honor upon a man. Doeg does not receive such praise here. David calls him a mighty man, but it's certainly not a mighty man of valor, not a mighty man of, of honor. He is perhaps a man mighty in position, as we'll see later on in the psalm. He was Saul's chief herdsman. He was perhaps a man uh, of, of mighty wealth and that he had a lot of material goods. We, we know that he was certainly a mighty man of wickedness, right? Uh, a man of, of lies and of, of wickedness, of violence. Perhaps David is even using the term sarcastically here, calling him a mighty man. You think that you're a mighty man because you've done this. You think that you're something special because you rose up and you killed 85 innocent people plus their families. That doesn't make you a mighty man. That doesn't make you someone of valor or honor. That that just makes you a worm. So David's question to this mighty man is this. He says, why boast in your mischief? That word literally meaning badness or evil. Why would you boast in your evil? Doeg had not only lied about Ahimelech and about David, he had not only destroyed the whole priestly house, but it would appear that Doeg continued to use his, his tongue, his mouth in the wrong way by boasting about it, by boasting about what he did here. He didn't, he didn't fight an army in battle like David's mighty men, some of whom slew several hundred men in battle. He, he, he killed 85 innocent men, Wearing linen ephods, having no weapons, and then he killed their families. That's not something to boast about, David says. It didn't take any skill, might, or greatness for Doeg to slaughter Ahimelech and his family. It only took a wicked heart and a lying tongue. Before David even leaves the first stanza, however, he also establishes, in contrast to Doeg, God. And not just in contrast, but in deep opposition. He says, The goodness of God, however, endureth continually. That even in the face of Doeg's wicked works and actions, God is still on the throne. This will make more sense as we go throughout the psalm. In verses 2-4 through he says, Thy tongue deviseth mischiefs like a sharp razor, working deceitfully. Thou lovest evil more than good and lying, rather than to speak righteousness. Selah. Thou lovest all devouring words. O thou... Deceitful tongue. So in verses 2 through 4, David establishes Doeg's character, uh, focusing specifically on his tongue, on the words that he speaks. He says that Doeg's tongue devises mischiefs. That word this time, in in verse 1, mischief meant evil. In this verse, it doesn't mean evil in the Hebrew, but specifically ruin, to bring ruin, destruction Doeg's words were direct, d- directed toward the ruin of Ahimelech and his entire family. He, he likens Doeg's words to sharp razors. Sharp razors cut effortlessly. They cut efficiently. Uh, they, they are thorough in their work. Sometimes you have a knife and you're trying to do something and then you say, you know, forget this knife. I, I need to go find a razor blade, right? You need a thinner blade. You need something that can do a finer cut, a, 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 a better cut. And so you get a razor blade. That's how he... Describe Doeg's words here. He knew where to strike, he knew how to strike, to bring Ahimelech and his family to ruin, and indeed, he did. David gives a distinct contrast in verse 3, telling Doeg that he, he loves evil more than good. He loves lying more than righteousness. Doeg embodies everything that is morally backward. Through the way he speaks. Where the man of God would love to speak well, Doeg reveled in speaking evil. Where the man of God would love righteous clarity unto truth, Doeg was loyal to deceit and lies unto poisonous effects, unto death. And here David places a Selah. He asks us to contemplate that for a moment. That's what the Selah is, right? We, we do those at the end of our messages. We call them Selahs. That's when you stop and you contemplate what you have heard. And as we stop to contemplate for a moment, let's consider a couple other verses in the Scriptures. Isaiah would say to the rebellious house of Jacob in Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God abhors those who twist morality who invert morality who who treat the right as if it were wrong and the wrong as if it were right those who see evil and call it good those who see darkness and call it light those who taste that which is bitter and call it sweet we'll talk a little bit about the current events in light of that tonight the political climate of the day but is is Isaiah 520 not not our nation not politics is Isaiah 520 not Everything that you see in, in the debates, everything that you read about in the, in, in the politics section of the newspaper, everything that happens in Washington, Isaiah 520. The lying lips, the, the twisting of truth, God hates it. This entire psalm is about how God hates that. Psalm 52. That's what Doeg was. He was a deceitful tongue. He was a man who twisted the words. He loved evil more than good, lying rather than speaking righteousness. He inverted morality, and God hates it. Doeg was a man whose words revealed him to have no loyalty to that which is true, no loyalty to that which is honest or upright or righteous. He was only loyal to getting his way. He was a callous man of moral wickedness and lies. David tells Doeg he's a man who loves words which devour other people, words which strike at others, words which hurt others, words which confuse the truth. He references him as a deceitful tongue, literally associating his entire being with his wicked words. In verses 5 through 7, David contemplates the fate of this kind of a wicked man. Verse 5, he says, God shall likewise destroy thee forever. He shall take thee away and pluck thee out of thy dwelling place and root thee out of the land of the living. Selah. In similar fashion to David's multifaceted description of Doeg's wickedness, his lies and his deceit, David now gives a multifaceted description of God's dealings with such a man. He says that God will destroy him, that literally meaning he will tear him down. He will take him away. He'll, he'll pluck him out of his place of dwelling. He will root him out of the land of the living. That God will bring low this kind of a man. David describes in this verse the destruction of all that Doeg would seek to establish through his lies. Doeg wanted power. Doeg wanted position. David says, God will bring you low. You may find it temporarily. You may find it as long as Saul is king in in his, in his state of pretty much insanity. But you will be brought low. You will receive the fruit of your actions, Doeg. Once again, it's upon this very serious thought that David gives another Selah. Asks us to dwell on that for a few moments. In verse 6, we find when God does this, when, when God does bring this about in Doeg's life, he contrasts the wicked man with the righteous. He says, the righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. The product of God's destruction of liars in verse 6 is that they will see, the righteous will, will see God tear down the liar and it will first heighten the righteous man's fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to revere Him, to recognize His strength, His power, His might, His capacity and so to live in light of Him. We oftentimes give the illustration as we're trying to describe the fear of the Lord to that of, of a police officer. Right. You're walking down the street and you see a police officer and you say, hello, officer, how are you today? And you don't tremble in your boots whenever you see one, at least in this country yet. But. At the same time, when the wicked are doing wrong. They fear the officer and we as a society fear the fact that officers have authority. It it doesn't mean that we're afraid of them, but it means that we respect them. You're not going to go up to an officer and start flicking his ears in the back or something because you recognize that the man has authority. And so you're going to treat him with respect, reverence, because he has authority. That's the idea of, of fearing the Lord. It's not that we have to, we, 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 we tremble so that we have to hide from him or that we, we're, we're afraid to bring our request before him. In fact, he's also a loving father. But as our loving father, we also recognize he's a mighty king that he has authority that he has power and so we don't want to get on his bad side and when you're on the the right side of god then there's nothing to fear in in the the trembling sense when you're when you're not on his when you rebel against him there's everything to fear and that's what it means to fear the lord so it heightens our fear of the lord but it also He says, gives the righteous man joy, righteous joy as he considers the eventual downfall of the deceitful man, the victory of the righteous. That that one day truth will be made known. That even though a politician can stand up and spew lies, and we can prove their lies because we have them on video saying the opposite. And he can spew all of this vitriol and all of these lies and you can watch the damage that he does to this country. You can rejoice in the fact that you know that everything that is wrong will be made right one day. And you can find peace there. He continues in verse 7. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength. This is the righteous saying this. This is the righteous laughing. This is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. The man who trusts in himself establishes himself in wickedness. The Bible says the righteous will look at him and laugh and say that's that's what happens. That's what happens. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you've had a friend and they're about to do something stupid and you look at him and say don't do that. (laughs) That's pretty stupid. You're going to hurt yourself. And then he does it and you say that's what happens. I told you so. That's the idea here. The righteous will look at that man, that liar, and they'll say, this is what happens to the man who strengthens himself in his wickedness, who trusts in his riches and the abundance of his strength and doesn't make God his strength. The final verses of this psalm, David contrasts. He turns his own eyes to his integrity and he contrasts this with Doeg. He says, but I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God Forever and ever. I will praise thee forever and ever because thou hast done it. I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. David trusts not that he is perfect. But indeed that he has the mercy of the Lord in truth. He calls himself a green olive tree. Which is the idea of that which is young. That which is prosperous. That which is new. That which is abundant. That which brings forth fruit. And as is so typical of his psalms. God's mercy overflows in David's heart unto praise. He praises that God is true. He praises because God is faithful. He praises because God is good to those who love Him. And he ends his psalm with that encouragement that even though wickedness exists, God's still on the throne and truth will yet and must prevail. If not in this life, then we know certainly in the life that is to come. Now, in our time of application this morning, as we contemplate this psalm, we we consider the tongue. That's where I want us to go with this. The Bible has much to say about the tongue, and we would do well to heed its warnings about its power. And if we're going to consider the power of words, we can do no better than to go to what we might call the treatise on the tongue in the Scriptures, which is James chapter 3. James chapter 3 gives us probably the most definitive, clear teaching on the power of words in the Scriptures. And so we're going to take some time to go through the first 10 verses of James and just explain it a little bit as we boil over into our application this morning. James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The Scriptures tell us, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able also to bridle his whole body. So James begins this chapter and it's important that we start at the beginning because this is the context for his teaching on the tongue. And the context is actually in that of teachers. When he says here, be not many masters, that word masters is actually the Greek word for teachers. It literally means, this phrase would mean, my brethren, stop becoming many teachers. Teachers occupied a place of honor in the early church, particularly among the Jews. You know that in in the Jewish culture, to be a rabbi was a a great honor. To be called a rabbi would have been a, a tremendous honor. And as the Jewish Christians transitioned into the New Testament church, that position of teacher was still one of great honor. So people were seeking it. They wanted to become that. They really wanted to become teachers. And James warns them here, be careful here. Because a teacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a teacher of the word of God, doesn't just bring upon himself more honor. He also brings upon himself greater judgment. That when you stand before God one day and your pastor stands before God one day, if he's looking at you with a magnifying glass, he'll be looking at me with a microscope. He, I will receive the greater judgment because my words, I'm, I'm representing myself as an authority in regard to the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, in regard to the scriptures. And so James says, don't be so hasty to become a teacher of the word of God. Because when you take that step, you place yourself under greater responsibility and accountability before God. And so as he he gives this warning, he transitions to this warning about Words. He says, for in many things we offend all. In many things we all offend, right? We offend one another. We, we, we sin. We do things wrong. We, we, we aren't always kind. We aren't always this. We aren't always that. He says, but if any man doesn't offend in word, that's a perfect man. Because what, we're all going to, aren't we? We're all going to say things that are wrong. We're all going to say something that hurts somebody. We're all going to say things that are out of turn, out of place, that cut, that dig, that, that um, are unkind. If a man is able to bridle his tongue, James says, then he's able to control his whole body. He's got, he's got himself under control if he can control his tongue. See, the unique thing about the teacher of God's word is that his words matter more than the words of other men. And I don't say that to flatter teachers, but but the words that a man says in, in a representative capacity of God matter, don't they? Spiritually. And while in many things we all offend, the man who doesn't offend in word is said to be that complete man. If you control your words, there's not a whole lot you can't control, James says. And he goes on in verses 3 and 4 and he says this, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great are driven and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. So James uses two illustrations here. He uses the illustration of a bit in a horse's mouth, and he uses the, the illustration of a helm or a rudder on a ship. These are both very small objects that control very large objects, right? The bit in the horse's mouth, the horse is a big, strong animal. And yet, when you have that bit in his mouth, you can turn him in the direction you would have him to go. A a ship is very large, but when you're turning, when you're at the helm and you're turning that wheel or or, or whatever you've chosen to navigate, the rudder is directing the way that the ship goes, though the rudder is is proportionally significantly smaller than, than than the rest of the ship. James then says in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on the fire of hell. James says, the tongue is just like that rudder. The tongue is just like that bit. It's a little member, but it boasts great things. It's small, but it's powerful. It's small, but it's so powerful. Yet another illustration is given here, one of fire. He says it takes a little spark to start a huge fire. I remember growing up in Colorado, and Colorado is one of those extremely arid states, right? It's very dry. And every year we'd hear about forest fires. And it was amazing to hear about how these were started. Sometimes it would be a lightning strike and whatnot. But, you know, sometimes it was as simple as a guy lights a campfire and then he drops the match too early and it just, everything starts up. Sometimes it was as simple as one little, uh, you know, put, put a piece of wood in and something pops off and it goes into the grass and next thing you know... Square miles are burned. Sometimes it's as simple as a guy having a cigarette and just dropped that cigarette, stepped on it, but he didn't quite get it extinguished. And next thing you know, houses are gone. Entire forests are up in flames. How great a fire, how great a thing, uh, just a little fire can kindle. James says the tongue is like that match. The tongue is like that spark. A small little thing which can start a wildfire of extreme destruction. Destruction. The tongue, he says, can defile your whole body. It can set on fire the very course of nature. And James says it's set on the fires of hell. It can take the very worst of everything in this world and it can just bring it to light. That word hell there, we talked a little while ago about the different words for that, right? And I told you, anytime you come across hell in the Bible, look it up if you're you're using a King James because... The King James always uses the word hell, but in fact, there are very different and distinct Greek words behind it. Well, the word used here is the word Gehenna, which it's, this is the only place it's used outside of Jesus Christ's teachings. And it's speaking of that lake of fire, that place of utter destruction. It speaks of nothing else in the scripture. James says the tongue can literally bring about the, the destruction of, of hell upon this earth. The tongue can bring about the very worst things. If you you find a man that can't bridle his tongue, a man of vitriol and of wickedness and of wicked words, that's an extremely dangerous man. He can set on fire the course of nature. He can set it on the fires of hell. Scriptures tell us. The lake of fire, the place of, of utmost destruction. Words have started wars. Words have ended wars. Words have prevented wars. Words have changed the very course of history. Words have changed the very direction of lives. Maybe you have someone in your life who one day said something to you that changed your life. It just changed your course. It can happen, right? What if they had never said that to you? And it just changed your life. Words are powerful. He continues, James does in in verses 7 and 8. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. Man is really good at taming things. But the tongue, he says, can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is untamable. The bridle rules the horse, but the rider rules the bridle. The rudder rules the ship, but the captain rules the rudder. The tongue, however, is uh, by default under the control and responsibility of no one but the spirit of the one who has it. The tongue goes wherever our, our, our evil hearts desire us to go. Like the bit in the mouth of an untamed horse or like the rudder on a ship without a captain. The tongue, when unbridled by truth and obedience, is a force of its own and a fatal force at that, deadly poison. A fatal force. Verses 9 and 10. Therewith, James says, we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. The danger that we face. And remember, he's speaking to, to those who would desire to be many masters, right? He's warning about teachers. And, he, and as he's doing so, he's talking about the fact that teachers' words matter. And so he's talking about how important uh, the, the, the pastors, the teachers' words are. And as he says this, he highlights the dangers of having teachers which bless God, but which curse men. And he highlights the the, the danger of spiritual disconnect there, where we divorce our theology of our minds, the theology, what we understand, with the practical doctrine of our words. Where we can say good things from the Bible, but at the same time, we can tear others down with our mouths. James says, these things ought not be so. Now, follow a train of thought with me this morning. In these two verses, we see that idea of, of men blessing the Father and cursing other men, which are made after the similitude of God. You know, the Bible tells us quite clearly that murder is wrong. When you unlawfully take another man's life, the Bible explicitly states that this is wrong because man is made in the image of God, right? That is why murder is wrong. So to destroy a man's life is to destroy the image of God that God has made. So heinous is the crime, in fact, as we read in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. The scriptures tell us, And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of a man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Here we see God institute the law of capital punishment whereby He gives governments the authority to take a man's life. He gives a man the authority to take a man's life when that man has taken the life of another. God has given government the authority, having established guilt, and indeed the obligation to take that man's life. And the reason given is because man is made in the image of God. Now, these two verses go farther than that, though. They even take it to the animal kingdom, that if an animal takes the life of a man, that animal should be killed as well. Because the image of God, that, the, the fact that, the, that man is made in the image of God is so important that even if an animal, having not the, the typical motivations that you would think of, you know, the death penalty today, though it's, it's almost completely gone, the death penalty would only be for those that do heinous premeditated murder, right? The very worst of the worst. And yet, animals, why would they kill a man? Well, typically, they're protecting something or they're hungry, right? And yet, even if an animal were to kill a man, God says, kill that animal. Why? Because that animal has marred a man who's made in the image of God, has killed a man made in the image of God. Now, consider that, again, these verses within the context of what James says in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men which are made after the similitude of God. And then he says these things ought not be so. Few among us would ever think about using our bodies to murder a person made in the image of God. Yet how many of us would not be nearly as hesitant to use the deadly poison of our mouths against those made in the image of God. And yet James connects the same principle, the same principle to how we treat other men with our mouths as how we treat other men with their lives. Solomon put it this way in Proverbs 18:21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Blessing and cursing uh, blessing God and cursing men ought not come from the same mouth. James says, evil and good ought not to come out of the same lips. Your words really matter, not just spoken, but written. Your communication matters. Your words have the power to destroy, but they also have the power to bless. They have the power to tear down, but they also have the power to build up. Now, in the second part of the sermon, I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to, to, to narrow it down to some of the dangers with our tongue. That'll be this evening. We'll talk about some of the the negative aspects of how we speak and and the dangers of those. We're going to highlight them. Today, in in the morning service, however, in part one, I'd like us to consider broadly the power of the tongue as it relates to three categories. And we're going to stay positive this morning. I'm going to give you the positive aspects of positive speaking. Then this evening, we'll, we'll look at the dangers of when we speak wrongly. We'll look at at the dangers that relate to the tongue. So there are... Generally speaking, three directions toward which our words can be directed. And in each case, we have the capacity either to bless or curse. We can speak for or against God, either through praise or through blasphemy, right? We can speak for or against our neighbors, and we'll talk about that one this evening. And then our speech can be directed for or against ourselves. Discretion and modesty, we speak building ourselves up. When we are indiscreet or immodest, we actually speak against ourselves. We do damage to ourselves. And the warning that we must heed as we consider these realities is that our speech isn't just whistling into the wind, metaphorically. Communication is a powerful tool which can be exercised unto great blessing or unto great destruction. And when you have something powerful something that can be extremely helpful in the right hands, but extremely dangerous in the wrong hands, it is important that we train ourselves to use it properly, right? A chainsaw is an extremely helpful tool. There have been times where, where my wife and I have been able to do something with a chainsaw that we probably could not have done otherwise. But it's only helpful if you know how to use it. In the hands of someone that doesn't know how to use it, it can be extremely destructive. We could say the same thing of many tools. We could say the same thing of firearms. We could say the same thing of of matches. We could say the same thing of so many different elements of life. Fire is an amazing blessing, but in the wrong hands, it can do so much destruction. So too, your words are an incredible tool. But if you use them wrongly, they can do so much damage. So let's consider in our application this morning in light of God's positive declarations about how the tongue can be used, some of these blessings. First, use your words to bless. Use your words to bless. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 says, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. In James 3, we learned that the same tongue Is used to bless God and to curse men and that these things ought not be so. But it is important to understand which part of the contradiction is wrong. Which part is James saying these things ought not be so? (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's the cursing of men that James says shouldn't be there, right? Much to the contrary, Paul wrote to the Colossian church in verse one of chapter four, he told them to treat, he told masters to treat their servants with justice. In verses 2 through 4, he tells them to be a prayerful people. In verse 5, he told them to walk in wisdom in the midst of the unbelieving world. And then he hits verse 6, and he says that their speech should be always with grace, seasoned with salt. All the time, gracious. Gracious in word, gracious in delivery. Your speech should be characterized by graciousness. And he says seasoned with salt. Now, in our modern times, salt does not perhaps have the same number of use cases as it had back in the day. We now have refrigeration and all of these fantastic, wonderful things that we can use to do what what, what used to have to be done with salt. Salt certainly adds flavor. We still do a lot of that today, right? Um, Praise the Lord. We love salt. But salt is also a preserving agent, is it not? And it was particularly back in the day. It, It was meant to make food last longer. You would salt your meat... And it would give it the capacity to last longer because it was salted. And the idea here that our our speech should be seasoned with salt. It should be gracious. It should add good flavor to the conversation. And it should also add an element of preservation to the conversation. It should be right. It should direct people toward that which is right. Is that what your speech does? When you open your mouth and you say words to your brother, to your sister, to your mom, to your dad, to your children, to your boss, to your employees, to your teacher, to your aunts, uncles, pastor, congregation, is your speech always with grace, seasoned with salt? In every situation, even the hard ones, even in rebuke, even in conflict, your speech ought to be gracious, ought to reflect care. And this not only rules out malicious speech, things such as gossip and cutting and mockery, but it also kind of rules out angry outbursts, doesn't it? Those times when you are less than gracious, not because you're trying to be malicious, but because you, your patience has been brought to its limit, parents. And yet, we should use our words to bless. Second, use your words to edify. Ephesians 4.29 Paul says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good, what? To the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The word corrupt here is used only five times in the New Testament outside of this use case. And all five of those times are by Jesus. And all but one of those is speaking of corrupt fruit. We talked about it this morning in Sunday school. The the good tree brings forth good fruit. The corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. That's this word. Anything which has the capacity unto virtue also has the capacity unto vice. And speech is no different. In defining that which is corrupt, we need only contrast it with what the verse says. What is not corrupt? That which is good to the use of edifying. That word edify literally means to build up as opposed to tearing down. That which is useful, that which is good fruit, is that which edifies, that which builds another person up. So words that we ought to be speaking are words that naturally build people up. Not words that tear them down. Not words that destroy them. Not words that hurt them. The old adage goes, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, right? And it's a good adage but this could also apply to what we might call useless speech when we seek to use our words to edify that means our words should probably be fewer than what they are proverbs 10:19 in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin but he that refraineth his lips is wise the more words you put out there the more likely you are to have some errant words right and so maybe it's it's in part us learning how to to direct our speech. And you know there are times to rebuke, right? There are times to rebuke, there are times to to correct, but but it should always be to build up, not to destroy. For for their best good, not for their destruction. Proverbs 15:4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life but perverseness therein is a breach of the Spirit. We'll talk about perverse tongues tonight. Good fruit comes from a good heart. Good words come from a good heart. Proverbs 17, 27. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of excellent, of an excellent spirit. The man of knowledge keeps his words to a minimum and makes his words count to edify to build up. Young men, we, we, we don't like to spare our words, do we? Particularly young men, we have a, a multitude of words. Well, actually, young women have a lot of that in them too, don't we? Young people, you have a multitude of words. But the Bible says the wise person, the one that has knowledge, spares his words. It doesn't just say the first thing that comes, out of the, that comes into their head, that comes into their mouths. Put a guard at that mouth. Watch it. Make sure that the stuff coming out is not corrupt. Make sure that it edifies. Make sure that it blesses. Number three. Oh, not quite yet. Uh, James one nineteen. James says this. Still under, use your words to edify. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. You know, they say that you have two ears and one mouth, Right? You should be doing double the listening to the speaking. It's a good thought. Be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Be always ready to listen, but be sure that when your mouth opens that you have something worth saying. So, use your words to bless. Use your words to edify. Third, use your words to thank. Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saint's, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather, in contrast, giving of thanks. Paul contrasts several negative speech elements, which we'll talk about this evening, with the virtue of thanksgiving. Rather than waste our words in filthiness, in perverseness, in foolishness, in 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 worthless jesting and bickering and mockery, how about... We turn those words into something that's thankful unto the Lord. He calls all of those negative aspects that which is not convenient, not proper. He says, rather, fill your lips with thanksgiving. Be a thankful person. Be thankful to God. Be thankful in the name of God. Next, use your words to teach. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen: Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The essence of our duty as followers of Christ upon this earth is to bring glory to God by personal holiness and determined discipleship. Ephesians 4.16 tells us that as the body of Christ labors through its members, it makes increase of itself unto the edifying of itself in love. God has given you a mouth for many reasons. And one of those reasons is so that you can communicate the truth to others. Be it the gospel to the lost, Where we echo the words of the apostles as they declared, I cannot but speak the things which I have both seen and heard. Or whether it be the doctrines of the faith to the believing world, patiently helping others, iron sharpening iron as we lead each other into the doctrines of Christ. Our words are intended to communicate truth. And that's a part of building up, right? That's a part of edifying. And then finally, use your words to praise God. Psalm 34, 1 and 2. I will bless the Lord at all times, David says. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. The psalmist was determined to bless the Lord, that God's praise would be continually on his mouth for the purpose not only of praising God, but again of edifying, of leading others into gladness through God's praise. It's our privilege to lift our voices up. And joyful praise unto God. It's our privilege to extol the goodness of God in all circumstances. And without question, He's worthy of it, right? Without question, He is. We sang, How Great Thou Art This Morning. We sang, Redeemed. We sang, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. We, we recognized in song this morning the worthiness of our God. With our lips, we praised His name in singing. But when we leave this auditorium and you go and you get in the car, will that praise still be there? It cannot be said that the lips which praise God in spirit and truth are ever, while engaged in such a worthy endeavor, guilty of corruption or vanity or gracelessness. And so we have these five positive declarations this morning, and we'll give the negative warnings this evening. Positively, use your words to bless, use your words to edify, use your words to thank, use your words to teach. Use your words to praise God. As we consider this list, the point is that we would consider our own mouths this morning. Sibling, don't be thinking of brother or sister. Parent, don't be thinking of child. You can get there. Think of yourself first. Parents, you have an obligation to help your children with this, so so get there, but think of yourself first. In any aspect of our spiritual lives, understanding the positive command will always go farther than just understanding its prohibitions. You'll find that in life, negatives by default will go away, will fall away if you focus on the positives. In other words, by virtue of its very nature, a relationship with Jesus Christ is not about getting rid of the wrongs, but it's pursuing the right. And as we pursue the right, as we pursue righteousness, the wrong falls away. That's how God designed it to be. We'll talk about that in First Peter this, this uh, Tuesday night. I'm really excited about it. As we consider this concept, it's good that we understand the dangers, the, the, the wrong things to say. But it's far more beneficial if you just take these five principles, and you say, is everything I, that comes out of my mouth, does it align with this? And if it doesn't, how can it? How can I bless, edify, thank, teach, and praise God with what I say? How can I be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath? Maybe, maybe it's the multitude of my words I need to work on. Can it rightly be said that your speech embodies these characteristics? This is our duty before the Lord. It's written all over the scriptures. That what comes out of our mouths would be virtuous, would be right, would mean something for the Lord. And it's because, as we learned from Doeg this morning in David's Psalm, words have power, folks. You want to influence people? You don't have to become, you don't have to be super intelligent or super athletic or super good looking or, you know, your words have the power to influence people in such a real and meaningful way if we'll only use them as we ought. Let's pray together.